You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls. Oh, good one. Welcome back to all of our friends here for our uh, Sunday Gospel Reflection, the Byzantine Lectionary. Um, now for the Sunday of St. Gregory Polymus. The church gives us this Sunday one of, I think, probably one of my favorite passages in all of the gospel texts. I know I say that about virtually every text, but, but uh, now this one in particular is uh, very uh, moving for me because of uh, the location and the place that we've been there so many times before. It's one of my favorite places in the Holy Land. So we're going to look in Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, um, the story of the healing of the paralytic. Also in the epistle today, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 2, verse 4. Hebrews 1, 10 through 2, 4. And while we are commemorating the Sunday of St. Gregory Paulimus, we always remember through all of these series of Sundays that uh, really what we're doing is focusing upon the journey of the catechumen, all of us making our journey now with them to the font of baptism, either to be reborn in those waters of baptism, as the catechumen will, or to remember and recall and restore in our life the baptismal gift which was given to us in our restoration as children of God. So all of us fasting together then in this journey. Mark chapter 2, verse is 1 through 12, Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. Father Sebastian, you got your, uh, your cell phone out there, right? Your smartphone. Yeah. Okay. At that time, Jesus entered Capernaum, and it was reported that he was at home. And immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even around the door. And he spoke the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four, and since they could not bring him to, to Jesus because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was, and having made an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their heart, Why does this man blaspheme in this way? Who can forgive sins beside God? And at once Jesus, knowing in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, said to them, Why are you arguing these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Arise and take up your pallet and walk? But, they, but, but that you may know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your pallet, and go to your house. And immediately he arose, and taking up his pallet, went forth in the sight of all, so that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, Never did we see anything 
like this. Father, I, I mentioned this, one of my favorite passages in all of the gospel texts because of where this took place there in Peter's house, the place where he was staying in Capernaum, which, you know, before I went there on pilgrimage, I don't know, I would read a passage like this and just didn't mean anything to me in the sense of uh, it's, it's geographic setting, right? It's, it's the, the context in which this was going on where the synagogue was, where Jesus drove out the demons, where Peter's house was, where the sea was. And I didn't realize that the, the close proximity of all of this, and you can still go there today. Um, I encourage our participants to read uh, Mark chapter one, two, and three, just to kind of get the, a, the a fuller context. But where exactly does this fit in, just to help us understand, Father, where exactly does this fit in, in the context of Jesus's ministry? It says that there were crowds gathering. So obviously they already knew something of what Jesus was doing. Uh, so this is early in Jesus's ministry. This is certainly not at the very beginning. He's called the disciples. Uh, he's already living in, in, the, in the town there in Capernaum. He is uh, living in Peter's house. So the locals know who he is, obviously. And uh, he's already... If we look at the the uh, flow of events in Matthew's gospel, he has probably already preached the Sermon on the Mount, possibly. Hard to know for sure, but we're talking early in the ministry, but he's already fairly well-known. Crowds are really now, we're, we're well into the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The crowds are around, people are coming to him, they want to hear him preach, they want to hear him teach, they want to, they want to be healed. Now, he says to this man, your sins are forgiven you. But this is, a, you know, as a teenager reading this passage, hearing this passage in, 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 uh, at church, you know, I don't know, it was a little confusing. You know, I would, you say, look, what's easier to say to this guy, get up and walk, who can't walk, or to go, you know, to the priest in the confessional, the priest say your sins are forgiven you. So Jesus asked this question, which one's easier? And I'm wondering if you could kind of make sure that we're all on the same page here. Which one's easier to say to the paralytic, get up and walk, or your sins are forgiven you? What's the answer to what Jesus says here? Well, it's certainly a little bit of a debate, depending on how you want to read the context and the finer details. But if you go back into the Old Testament and and we look at Jesus is directing us in a certain way here. He says, so that you may know that the son of man, that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to do these things. So he, Jesus is directing us also into the Old Testament context, which is what's in their minds and what's we're, what we're dealing with here. So they're all thinking of it in what you and I would call Old Testament. Jesus is directing our attention that way and the crowds that way that the evangelist is. So we got to go back in the Old Testament and look and see. If we look in the Old Testament, we find uh, very wonderful miracles happening. We find Elijah and Elisha uh, feed, multiplying food, right? oil and bread and things like that. We find uh, Elijah and Elisha raising people from the dead. Even Elisha raises someone from the dead, God does through him, after Elisha's dead, right? So there's uh, raisings, uh, resurrections, there are... Um, Moses parts the Red, uh, the Red Sea. That's kind of significant. Uh, so there, if you go back in the Old Testament, you find these great figures in the Old Testament doing amazing things. 
raising people from their sicknesses, healing people, uh, healing lepers, parting the sea, multiplying food, raising the dead. But what we don't find anywhere is a uh, one of these characters in the Old Testament, David, Solomon, Moses, Joshua, uh, Isaiah, saying to somebody, your sins are forgiven. And and obviously, the, the more difficult thing to do, assuming to say is consistent with what you're going to do here, the more difficult thing to do is to forgive someone's sins, right? Now, you, someone might say that's an easier thing because nobody can check up on it, right? But I, it seems like what Jesus is showing them is the, the more he's already done the more difficult thing. And they are not accepting that. So now he's going to show them something that's just actually simpler and easier. And, and that is to raise this guy from his paralysis as a sign that he has already done the greater thing. And that is raise this man from his spiritual paralysis. And of course that raises questions of Jesus' identity, which is what's going on in the text. And then, and then as proof of this, the guy starts walking around. I, I, this is a, a, a beautiful passage on, for a number of reasons on a catechetical level during this time of Lent, in which the catechumen is being prepared for this very ministry of Jesus uh, in that uh, he is he's preparing himself to be cleansed of his sin in the waters of, of holy baptism, and then in a second layer, we can say, uh, symbolically or spiritually, he's being given legs again to walk. To, the, the great miracle, of course, uh, the miracles of Jesus are not so much that he gives eyes to sight to the blind and, 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 and uh, ability to walk to the paralytics and so forth, but that the person can now see spiritually again, they can see God, uh, that he can walk with the Lord again. And then this is the great the underlying principle of this of this gospel passage this person is now able the one who could not walk to Jesus all these people are gathered around coming to him here's the one guy who couldn't come but then there's a there's an aspect of this passage that is very beautiful his friends pick him up and carry him to Christ and then they even can't get through they they have to kind of lower him down to go to extraordinary means to be able to bring their friend. And then it says, it says this beautiful, this, this, there's a, an aspect of this that, that Jesus focuses on, focuses our attention on here. And it says, and Jesus seeing their faith. This is very beautiful because the fathers of the church tell us that the faith that Jesus sees, the faith of the friends who brought this man and it was because of their faith that this other was healed. And this is an important uh, aspect of the gospel passage today, because as we prepare for Holy Pascha, as we prepare for the baptism of the catechumens, and by the way, if in some of our parishes, there are no catechumens, it happens sometimes, some, some uh, seasons of Lent that there's no one preparing Remember that our church is bigger than our lo- just our local parish. And there are members of our community that are preparing themselves to be baptized into Christ. And maybe, uh, you know, at your parish, Father, or my parish, or another parish that, that we are in a spiritual communion with. And it is, on the, it is because of the faith of 
the friends of the catechumens that Jesus brings about the healing of this person. It is important then to remember how, how critical it is that we keep the fast, how serious it is that we take Lent seriously. We are living in a spiritual unity and communion with one another and in a sense carrying each other uh, to the feet of Christ so that we might be healed on the occasion of the faith of those around us. There's, there's much more to say here about this text, but I would encourage our participants to read this whole text in light of the catechumen and in light of the spiritual life of the, of the church. And then finally, before we move on to the, the epistle, just want to point out one last thing, and that is that when Jesus does forgive this man's sins, it says that all were amazed and then they glorified God. Oftentimes, I think, sadly, our community, the sacrament of holy confession is forgotten about. And I hear oftentimes in our communities, I, at least in my own, well, I confess my sins to God. I don't need the priest. Uh, but in fact, this is the gift that Christ has given us in the church in this spiritual communion that we might minister to one another. Confession is part of that, is given the gift of uh, the forgiveness of sins to certain members of our communities so that we might come up and be assured of the forgiveness of God. And we shouldn't deprive ourselves of that gift of holy confession. Uh, this is the design of God that all of us participate in the salvation of one another. And then to glorify God that he's given us such a gift as holy confession, that we might walk away as, as some of the fathers to us, the second baptism, this walkway renewed in the grace of God. Father, let's take a look now at the epistle for the second Sunday of Lent, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 2, verse 4, an epistle to the Hebrews. You in the beginning, O Lord, did found the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They shall perish, but you shall continue. They shall all grow old as does a garment, and as clothing shall you change them and they shall be changed. But you are the same, and your years shall not fail. Now to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool of your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent for service for the sake of those who shall inherit salvation? That is why we should all the more earnestly observe the things we have heard lest perhaps we drift away. For if the words spoken by the angels proved to be valid, and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? For it was first announced by the Lord and confirmed to us by those who heard it. Father, give us a context as we normally ask you to, the context here of who is writing here, who is the author of this epistle to the Hebrews, and what's he talking about regarding the angels and sitting at the right hand and so forth? Well, there are a couple things happening right here in these first two chapters uh, that are obviously related to that question. Who is, you know, the author, Paul, early church, I believe this was Paul. There were some who doubted that, but who wasn't Paul as someone related to Paul and the Pauline uh, team. But so Paul is writing this letter to 
the Hebrews. Now, we're not talking about Jews of the Old Testament or something. This is, these are <clears throat> Hebrew Christians. These are Jewish Christians. And most likely, we're talking about the Jewish Christians of Judea somewhere in there. It's being written to a large body of Jewish Christians who are in danger of apostasy. As you read the whole epistle, they are being persecuted, and that is causing some of them to be afraid to continue in the Christian faith, and, and, and our some are, are maybe starting to draw back from this faith and go back into Judaism. They are uh, also being attacked by some heresies, internal and external, some internal heresies, uh, one being that maybe Jesus is an angel, not God and man, but an angel. And this was something for, that was easy for a Jewish Christian to slip into. If you go back in the Old Testament, there are, there's God, and there's Israel, uh, and the rest, and the Gentiles. And then there's, there are these angels, and especially the angel of the Lord. And you see these angels going back and forth between God and man, and the angels appear often as men. And so one of the internal heresies among the Jewish Christians was to think of Jesus as an angelic being. And so the epistle of Hebrews, right off the bat in the first chapter, says that's not possible. Well, Jesus is, Jesus was in human form. Angels come in human form. There are some significant differences here. And so in chapters one and two, he's, he uses language that's very similar to uh, Philippians two, that, well, he was with God. He was in the heavenly realm. He was in the divine state. He became lower than the angels for a little while, that is, took on human form, so, and then was highly exalted above both both this you know earthly state and the angelic state back to where he was so that's we hear that if you have to read we have to read all of chapters one and two beyond what we need to do today but that's why we get that little reference there to the angels the other thing that he has to deal with here as i already mentioned is this this problem of apostasy due to some external heresies that we don't need to get into right here basically some doubting that jesus could be uh, a priestly kind of figure. The Epistle of Hebrews shows that he's not in the line of Aaron, he's of the order of Melchizedek and the order, line of, of David. That's for another discussion. But all of these things are plaguing these Jewish Christians, and, and some of them are beginning to fall away. Some of them are beginning to doubt. Some of them are just not able to continue or feeling a little overwhelmed by external persecutions by the Jews their Jewish relatives, sometimes unto death, and these internal confusions, external arguments by the Jews, apologetics against the Christians, and the weight is weighing them down. And so the epistle is designed to one by one address those issues. And right here, he warns them, as he does a number of times in the epistle, that if, if in the Old Testament, if in the Old Covenant Mount Sinai, those who re refused to receive the law were punished, chastised under the wrath of God. How much more culpable are we who have been given the new law and given the new covenant, received this, as he says throughout the epistle, tasted the goodness of God and the Holy Spirit, and if we reject such a great salvation? He says, look at what happened at Mount Sinai at the Golden Calf. Those who received it and said, we will do this, and then immediately turned away. 
And then now he says, how much more culpable are we who have, who have spurned the, the Son of God, et cetera, et cetera. And so he's warning them right off the bat to be careful and make sure that they continue on this journey, this, this Christian faith that they've taken upon themselves. You know, your, your words, I think, help us focus on why this text is given to us now uh, be, in light of the catechumen, at those preparing for holy baptism, and also those of us journeying, of course, with them to that day of renewal and the resurrected life, uh, the restoration of, of, of Christ's presence in our life. And, you know, as you were talking about this great gift we received, we get this in this final We've this final paragraph, you know, along with this warning, or not, let's say maybe a warning, but a, yeah, we could say a warning to the catechumens, a, a, a reminder, do not lose the faith. Just like, just like Paul was speaking to these, to these people, so the church speaks to us today, uh, whether it be the catechumen or those of us who are journeying along with them, do not give up, do not lose hope, and, and realize also that those things which had formerly been, say, gods in your life, all those priorities of our life, those things, as we're told in the first paragraph, are perishing. Huh? They, they, they become rusty and old and fall apart. The only thing that remains is, is the Lord himself. And this last paragraph, and I think we can probably conclude with, with this, is that, that uh, St. Paul says, that is why we should all the more earnestly observe the things we have heard Less perhaps there it is we drift away, and and I just uh, I think it's it's important to remember those things that we which we have heard, and you said very beautifully this gift of God within us. Oftentimes in our theological debates and so forth, the 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 faith becomes so complicated in our minds, but but here Saint Paul speaks as though it's a, it's a given known to those who have been baptized into Christ. For it was first announced by the Lord and confirmed by, uh, to us by those who heard it. This is the gospel message that indeed God has visited his people and has given us a restoration of life, which we lost uh, in the fall of our first parents. And it, it's so important that during this time that, we remember the core message of the gospel of why Jesus has come um, and, and what he has given us. And then to cherish this gift and never allow it to become old within us and never allow ourselves to, as St. Paul says, drift away uh, to, to begin to allow other priorities in our life to begin to take precedence. Um, I came across this this. this a beautiful quotation from St. Gregory Paulimus, whose memory we celebrate uh, this coming Sunday. He says this, Adam chose the treason of the serpent, the originator of evil, in preference to God's commandment and counsel, and broke the decreed fast. Instead of eternal life, he received death. And instead of the place of unsullied joy, he received this sinful place full of passions and misfortunes, or rather he was sentenced to Hades and nether darkness. Our nature would have stayed in the infernal regions below and the lurking places of the serpent who initially beguiled it. Had not Christ come, 
He started off by fasting, as we read in Mark chapter 1, verse 13. That's what I was encouraging. Go back and read the context. He started off by fasting and in the end abolished the serpent's tyranny, set us free, and brought us back to life. Doesn't that say so beautifully and so simply uh, what the Lord has done for us? And then this invitation in our life to uh, entering upon the fast, to break the tyranny of the evil one over us uh, through fasting and the grace of God, uh, that we might be set free and brought back to life. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and into ages and ages. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.